0: I'm Matt Booker.
1: And I'm Dave Laird. And this is The Great Concavity. Well, welcome, everybody, to the first episode of The Great Concavity. So, we're talking about conversations around Dave Foster Wallace, that is his literature biography stuff, interesting news, and things like that. So the plan, hopefully, is to have some kind of bi-weekly or monthly podcast with news, current events, topics, and interviews with all kinds of fascinating people, like academics, writers, artists, musicians, filmmakers. Who else, Matt?
0: That's a pretty good start. I mean, there is like a David Foster Wallace community, right? Like there, At least to me, there is like a group of people that consistently still talk about this stuff and post about it. And I think there'll be a lot of interest about Wallace in the near future because of this film. So maybe that will be a topic we will discuss. So Matt, who are you? For
1: our listeners at home, what's a bit about Matt Booker and what are some of your interests in Wallace?
0: My biography is, I feel not that interesting, but how I am <laughs> is somewhat involved in this is that I am the administrator of the David Foster Wallace listserv. Called Wallace L. And I've been in that role since 2002. When I first discovered the David Foster Wallace listserv, there wasn't a lot out there online about Wallace. It was about 1999, 1998 that I discovered this email list and I joined and I loved it. And the other thing that existed at the time was the Howling fantots Nick's site in Australia. So those two things have been around for a long time. The list service coming up on 20 years next year of existing. So it'll be 20 years of those email lists. And some of the same people have been on the list for 20 years. Like I say, I've been on it about 15, 16 years, something like that.
1: Um, so you didn't actually start
0: it, but you... That's correct. I didn't actually start it. Um, I wrote like a little history of it, if you want to read more about this online. But it was started really by a spin off group of the Pension list, Thomas Pynchon. And Pension just doesn't write that many books, right? So every few years, there would be yeah. some other new novelist that comes along, gets compared to Pension, and they would talk about him on the email list. And when Wallace came out with Infinite Jest, there was so much chatter about Infinite Jest, they said, why don't you go and start your own list? Um, and this is in 1996. Yeah. So that's sort of how that came about. But me, so just a little more about me, and then I'll, I want to get your kind of background in here, Dave, so I don't know if a lot of people know anything about either one of us. Yeah,
1: I'm a, I'm a nobody, so.
0: So am I. Uh, it's at waste.org, I was going to say, if you want to go and sign up. Good luck finding it. But
1: And also it's a lowercase l not an uppercase L. So I've always not been sure if it's Wallace I, you know, capital
0: I, or a lowercase L. So that's good to know. It's a rookie mistake, Dave. No. Very <laughs> <come. laughs> oh, It's a Wallace L. I I did the same thing and it, when I first joined. I think I tried to send it to, like, Wallace-1. I wasn't sure if it was an I. It didn't work. Oh, yeah. Um, but The L is for literature. Like, it's a spinoff of... Um, old like news groups that would have literature categories so right
1: speaking of uh thomas pynchon i went to the infinite wallace conference in paris last year in september at the Sorbonne and one of the guys gave a talk called covered in p and it was about uh david foster wallace and thomas pynchon so like capital p and it was you know like the funniest title of all the papers at the conference and everyone got all kinds of laughs out of it
0: uh that sounds that's a great very provocative title. I'm not sure what it has to do with pension, but
1: Yeah. Well the P standing for Pynchon, that Wallace is covered in Pynchon.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Not urine. No, I'm not talking about urine. Um so that you know, that's the the word play was quite funny.
0: Totally misunderstood <laughs> that.
1: Yeah, um, it's easier if you see it in writing versus hear it audibly. Okay, covered in P,
0: got it. So I was just gonna say a little more about um, my background. I also have some, you know, involvement in, in this community with my kind of side business with my older brother, John, and our company Sideshow Media Group. And we've published several books on Wallace, including uh, Greg Carlisle's Elegant Complexity, and his book on Oblivion called Nature's Nightmare, and a book edited by david herring called consider david foster wallace oh yes i have that on my book table i got involved in that because um we had done some books before but i always wanted to do something on wallace and greg had already written this book in 2005 2006 and really couldn't find a publisher for it and at the time 10 years ago there was not the same market for you know, kind of ancillary critical works on David Foster Wallace. And Greg was ready to just give up and not publish it. And I said, whoa, 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 we'll find a way to make this work because I think there'll be an audience for it. And since then, as a reader's guide to Infinite Jest, it's been, you know, very successful. And um, when his book on Oblivion came out, I wrote, you know, an interview on Nick's site on Howling Fantod's kind of like trashing the traditional publishers who I think should have, you know, embraced this idea 10 years ago. And now Bloomsbury has like 15 books on Wallace out. And Bloomsbury, I feel like would have done it uh, 10 years right. ago.
1: Interesting. That book, Elegant Complexity, is like practically the size of Infinite Jest, hey?
0: It's 500 and something pages.
1: It is so, so big. I've never, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But
0: We're talking right. about right now um, – I mean, in the next year or two, we're going to do a new edition of it, and we might try to slim it slim it down a little bit. But uh, I I think that's actually a selling point of it is that it's as long as it needs to be. hmm
1: Yeah. And like this is a comprehensive book. Yeah.
0: And you're located where, Matt? I live in Austin, Texas.
1: That's a that's a nice uh, little detail for Wallace fans because of the Ransom Center Archive.
0: Yeah, lucky for me, I moved here before that Wallace Archive existed.
1: So you're one of the cool kids.
0: (laughs) It sounds bad, right?
1: Yeah, no kidding. That's great. The hipster Wallace fan. Right. I have not had a chance to to get there yet, but um, in the very near future, I would like to. There was kind of like at the Paris conference, there was almost like a geologic posturing of those who had been to the archive and those who hadn't and it was like you know kind of like this badge that people were almost like oh yeah I was at the archive last year and like it's kind of funny
0: <laughs> that's interesting yeah uh, you know i think it's it's really valuable but i also think most of it could be digitized and you know, made available online i don't know if that'll ever happen but there's chunks of it that already are available online. Yeah, that would be
1: very. That would be a very nice development for students who are either, like, you know, can't get funding from their school to go there, to, or, or just, like, don't have the time in their schedule to travel to Austin for a week or whatever. They can do it from the comfort of their own homes.
0: Yeah, what's become the real use of it is almost like a religious pilgrimage, where you know, the ransom center probably hates this, but there's people who, you know, want to go in there and just handle his books and papers and they can, uh, the ransom center is publicly funded right. partly by the university of Texas, which is funded by the state of taxpayers. So they do allow people to go in and view right. things. There are some off limits things, you know, you can't hold the Gutenberg Bible they have, but most of the archives are working academic archives and you can go in there and get the orientation video and sign you know sign the papers and go in and request his books and examine them and that is for some people especially really hardcore fans i mean that's almost like a A religious experience and it's hard you know that's hard for some academics to take because academic job partly i think is to be unattached and to be cold and critical and not exuberant
1: yeah like dispassionate objectivity
0: yeah so that doesn't really mesh up with like fans who are really just in awe of You know, the fact that you're holding a handwritten page of Infinite Jest, it's hard to detach for some people and say, oh, well, this is, I'm just going to be cold critical eye here and look for marginalia. There's plenty of other people who want to just say, wow, this is, to me, this is the most, you know, I don't know, valuable book in my life or most prominent book in my life. And now I'm like holding the original draft of it. That's a pretty cool thing.
1: Yeah, totally. And I get the sense, too, from Wallace scholars that, you know, that I've met at conferences and stuff that they're basically just like huge fans. And then because of that, they, you know, are like, well, I can do some academic stuff with this, too, which is great because piggybacks on what I'm really interested in. Is Is that a sense that you sort of
0: get as well? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. It's about half and half, man. Yeah. I think there's half that are not that way. I think there's half that are... You know American literature scholars, and they're doing Jonathan Franzen next week, and Don DeLillo this week, and David Foster Wallace next week, and it's just another stop in their tour. Yeah. And then I think there are others who are exactly what you're saying, who are huge fans and they're lifers, and this is their uh, bread and butter. But I, I don't have a great sense of it.
1: Hmm. What is your um, sort of academic background? So you're in publishing. What is sort of your... How did you get into literature and maybe Wallace specifically?
0: Well, I don't have much of an academic background. I went to the University of Denver for undergrad and we did have a good creative writing program there and we had a lot of good PhD students in creative writing. It's one of the few schools where you can get a PhD in creative writing. And so we had writers coming in there all the time and there was one writer in particular who I think introduced me to Wallace. And it was my teacher, this woman named Beth Nugent. And if you haven't read her, she's phenomenal. I think she only has two books out that I know of, but they're phenomenal books. And she, to her credit, in, I don't know, 95, 96, had us reading excerpts of Wallace's stuff. And I was... Slightly impressed, but I wasn't it didn't make a huge impression on me until I saw um, Infinite Jest at the bookstore. So for me, that was a ga- that was a game changer on Wallace's whenever I bought Infinite Jest in 97 mm. or so. And then after that, I moved to New York City and, and worked in college publishing there at Columbia and NYU. So, I mean, I was on the fringes of, like, academia, where I would go to academic conferences, but, like, as an exhibitor selling books, like, almost as a bookseller and publisher.
1: So that... But, and so you're, like, a hardcore bibliophile, essentially. Pretty much. You have also presented academic papers at at conferences as well.
0: A couple, a couple, and um, I'm not sure I'll ever do it again. It's such torture, man. (laughs) The writing of them, like. Yeah, it's pretty rough. I know. I have total respect for people who do it, but it is really difficult to write an academic paper. It's really stressful to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it kind of opens you up to this like level of scrutiny that is that you don't really experience a lot in your regular life Um, because everyone just feels like everyone is just silently deconstructing you as you're reading it. Uh, But in my experience, I've only actually presented one paper at a conference, and that was recently at the second annual David Foster Wallace conference uh, that we met at recently in May. And that was my first conference paper. So it was somewhat terrifying, but the response was awesome. And I think the Wallace community is super cool and super friendly. And so... I just made lots of friends after I gave my paper, so it was, it was great. I had all these people wanting to talk to me about uh, Walter Benjamin, yeah, because, because I made like a very brief sort of one-off uh, reference to him in my paper, and then that just like oddly just opened the floodgates for conversation. That was the thing that people wanted to talk about, so I thought that was quite funny.
0: And what about you? Uh, so a bit about me.
1: Uh, so Matt, you're down in Austin, Texas. I am up in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. So most of uh, you listeners probably have never heard of this place. So it's close to Vancouver. It's about four hours east of Vancouver. Uh, the Olympics were there in 2010. So like you probably heard of Vancouver by now, hopefully. <laughs> um, Kelowna is kind of like an orchard-y, like, vineyard uh, kind of place. It's about 100,000 people, 150,000 people. Um, some famous things Kelowna is known for is we have this mythological lake monster called the Ogopogo which is also a palindrome. You can spell it the same backwards as forwards, which is which is pretty rad. What? Um, so I mentioned orchards. There's like all kinds of apple orchards and stuff. I was just going through Infinite Jest the other day for my uh, master's thesis research, and there's a part in it where Joelle Van Dyne, she's at Molly Notkin's party, and she references British Columbia apple juice uh, as, quote, extra sweet Canadian juice to be pretty much both her and Joelle's biggest vices the kind that looks muddy, it's so fresh. And then it's described as matte, like matte colored, uh, as well, this particular apple juice. And I mean, that's saying quite a lot that Joelle is more addicted to this muddy apple juice than uh, than her vice, you know, when she goes to have too much fun in the bathroom. But anyways, so like that juice is probably from my city or the surrounding area, fun little fact.
0: I, have no, I don't remember that part of the book.
1: Yeah, it's pretty obscure. It's on page two hundred and twenty-eight. Okay, and I like I didn't memorize that. I pre-wrote it down before uh, we started recording. So like, yeah, it just struck me as like, oh, that's something cool that I can talk about that that Wallace fans might remember. In terms of uh, career, I'm actually uh, I'm a, a high school humanities teacher. Uh, I've been teaching for about seven years in both campuses, and also uh, the school I teach for has a big online school in BC, so I teach for them. And I teach things like English and socials and media studies and a bit of theology stuff. Uh, right out of high school, I did one semester of business, uh, which was definitely not my realm.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, uh, but my dad was like a business guy. So he's like, you should go in business. I was like, OK.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then uh, then I did a year of theology in a uh, study at a school in California. And then uh, then I did my degree here uh, at UBC, which is the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Uh, They have like a little satellite campus here. And I did a history major, English minor, and then an education degree right after that. And then after teaching for seven years or five or six years, I decided to go back and do an MA. So I'm back doing that now. And I had to upgrade to an English major. So I had to do four undergrad courses. And then I could register for the MA. So that's where I'm at. Now I'm almost done. So I'm just working on my thesis, which is on Infinite Jest and Theology. So that is... Sort of the academic stuff that I do with Wallace, um, Matt. What are some uh, other, let's say, authors that you're interested in that you might kind of relate to Wallace? There are like, what are some books that you've been reading that you might be able to make comparisons to?
0: I, I don't know if anyone really compares to him extremely well, but I I me personally, I have an interest in the writer yeah. Roberto Bolano, and I have a website that I update. Somewhat sporadically about Bologno and he also doesn't compare well to too many other people except for his books that are lengthy. Um, I, I read a lot, man. It's hard for me to yeah. to put things into like categories and groups things together uh, very well. But I, basically, anyone that comes out and is compared to Wallace, I'm gonna give them a look so uh, you know book marketers and publishers use that a lot as like oh this guy's the next Wallace so this is like Infinite Jest and I'll at least take a look at anyone compared with him and in that group you know of people that he had I mean I probably have an opinion on all those people you know Saunders, Franzen, Eugenides Volman, Rick Moody all those guys like I have an opinion about them (laughs) but I, I don't know what about you? So
1: the, the way that I got into Wallace was through Don DeLillo. And so I, like, I kind of in my 20s didn't really give fiction a lot of, a lot of attention. Uh, I was mostly just interested in like nonfiction stuff. But then I read White Noise in a third-year American Lit class. And I was like, oh, wow, I need to read more of the books that are like this. So that sent me kind of like on a trajectory Uh, and mostly I did a lot of research on like Amazon, you know, where it's like people who bought white noise also bought this book. And then, so I kind of just threw like doing a lot of that kind of like rabbit holing in Amazon and just like started writing down lots of books that looked interesting. Um, and then I had, uh, a really good friend who was quite into, into American lit. So he would, he was kind of like being like, yo, you should read this as well. And this, and this, and this. Um, so I read infinite jest for the first time in 2007, so about eight years ago now. So I was pretty far behind the curve in terms of like it coming out in 1996. Nah. No, I'm not too far behind the curve.
0: <laughs> nah, no, nah, you're not too far.
1: I'm a David Foster Wallace poser.
0: No, 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 no. I don't want you to ever think that. Don't ever say that about anyone.
1: No, no, I'm just <laughs> totally just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris Adrian's a writer that I really like out of San Francisco. He's published um, some stuff through McSweeney's. And I tend to like a lot of the McSweeney's novels that they publish. Uh, Adam Levin is another guy that I really like. The Instructions is a book that he wrote, also by McSweeney's. Uh, And he's also a guy that gets compared to Wallace because his book, The Instructions, is properly massive. Like it's well over a thousand pages. Have you had a chance to check that one out at all?
0: You know, we discussed this earlier. I have not read it. I have read the Chris Adrian stuff, but I, I've got that on my list now of thousand page people. So yeah. that that's one I, I remember it coming out and it was a massive <laughs> book, like a phone book size. Like it's just a huge book. And my friend had it at his house and like yeah. I would take it off the shelf and look at it and just be like, Wow, this thing is huge. I should read some of it and like I read a couple pages. I don't remember any of it, so I really need to go back to that book.
1: Yeah, it looks like an Oxford English Dictionary, uh, almost, in, this, in terms of size. It's actually way lighter than Infinite Jest. Uh, like, for whatever reason, the composition of the pages is lighter. Um, but it is way bigger looking than Infinite Jest. But it's actually a lot of a faster read. There's no footnotes. You're not flipping back and forth. Um, so it is actually pretty quick read, considering how large it is yeah but i love it like i would say it's probably my top three favorite novels it's so so funny and, and engaging it's worth checking out uh cormac mccarthy i like a lot
0: oh he's great of yeah. course
1: yeah um i teach english 11 and i did the road with my class this was a few years ago which was a bit of a risk just in terms of like hey parents here's this really yeah. dark book that i'm gonna read with your kids i hope that's cool um but it went over quite well <laughs> the students generally liked it quite a lot. And teaching literature with at that level, I kind of prefaced the course by quoting from Wallace from the McCaffrey interview. You know, the, the 51% pain, 49% pleasure ratio that he talks about with like high art versus commercial art, which is like 100% pleasure. And then so that was kind of like a touchstone throughout the course. And then kids after the road were like, you just gave us a book that's 100% pain and like 0% pleasure. So where's that?
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: So that was funny. I mean, it's, it's very bleak, but I think there's some pretty beautiful redemptive imagery in it as well. But yeah, it's, it's not for the faint of heart.
0: I like it. I don't think it's his best work. I mean, I, for me, I really like The Crossing. I don't know if you've read that book. No, I haven't. Blood Meridian and The Crossing, to me, that's, that's about as good as it gets.
1: Yeah, Blood Meridian
0: is just wild. I highly recommend it. You know, it's part of that Border Trilogy where um, the crossing, Cities of the Plain, and all the pretty horses, they're all fantastic, but of those, I really like the crossing. And it starts out with you know, one of the best sequences of this guy taking a wolf back to Mexico. I really, I really think that part of it in particular is maybe the best thing McCarthy has done. I mean, Blood Meridian is fantastic to me, but it's also like it's so gruesome towards the end. Like, there's so much, just, just I feel like sensationalism in it. Yeah, like pornographic violence almost. There's
1: that one line in it where it talks about a Native American getting like his head quartered. Like, he gets shot in the head, and it says like the the word "court." Like, his head is quartered, and you're just like, oh, gross. You see like you know one fourth of this guy's map just get totally erased so matt you also gave a paper at the conference that was kind of that was theologically
0: geared um what was the title of your paper again Uh, yeah i forgot about that my paper was about the part of the pale king that i call the fogel novella section 22 about a character named chris fogel and his sort of conversion to the IRS and he's a guy who converts sort of from a life of being a wasteoid into being a tax examiner working for the IRS and I th- I thought it was one of the most interesting things Wallace has written like why is he interested in this you know sort of Christian conversion narrative of a guy who has sinned and done bad and now he's going to go straight and do right Why is he writing, you know, so much about this guy's life story and life history? Why is he sort of playing around with that in this book? I I found it really interesting because it means the book is not really about boredom and tax and the stuff that it appears to be on the surface. I think it's about something deeper than that. And it's about sort of like being an adult and being, you know, going straight and being responsible citizen and how do you really live a life like that what does life mean so that's what i was trying to write about Mm -hmm.
1: cool and you do some really interesting comparisons between saint paul and this character chris vogel
0: yeah i thought paul's conversion story was really interesting because he saw this loud like vision or he saw this very bright light and then he also heard like a loud voice and that's what convinced him to you know give up his ways of persecuting the church and become a follower of Jesus. But really, it was the sound that convinced him to convert. And the same thing happened to sort of in pre-literate society. They relied on sound and talking and voice. They didn't rely on people reading a book to convert to a religion. And this idea of sermons and preaching was really important, really, to the spread of religion and Christianity as we know it, up until really the... T- 20th century. And in the 19th century and 18th century, you know, sermons were how they converted people. So I I think it's important in the book, Fogel is giving a sort of a testimony and what converts him is listening to someone else's sermon, actually from a Jesuit priest who is a substitute teacher at uh, his college.
1: Yeah, and that's just, like, the be- one of the best scenes in Pale King. It's so interesting.
0: Now, Dave, your paper was about Chronic City, is that right?
1: Yeah, it was about Jonathan Lethem's Chronic City and sort of the influence or the shadow of David Foster Wallace in that book. If you've read that book, if people have read that book, it takes place in this kind of, like, weird, futurist... Well, not futuristic, but just, like, just bizarre Manhattan. And there's, like, this ubiquitous chocolate smell and this, like... Bog that just sticks around forever everyone's lives are very much based upon appearance and there's just all these really wacky and weird things going on in that book but there's a there's a novelist that the characters talk about called Ralph Ward and Meeker uh, in that book and then they go on to describe his gargantuan novel Obstinate Dust um, so it's like a pretty heavy-handed Wallace reference and then the way they describe the book as like a brick of pages as a as a big novel and all this other stuff is quite funny and then there's this artist in the book in chronic city called laird noteless and he makes this this huge art installation in manhattan called not the great concavity but urban fjord (laughs) and so like the the protagonist takes this book obstinate dust and he goes and sees he goes stands at the edge of this like essentially it's like a big garbage dump because people have like thrown their waste into it so it's kind of like you know, it's signaling the great concavity kind of idea. And he and so he like he's sick of this book and how big it is and like he's lugging it around everywhere. So he throws it into the urban fjord and like almost dislocates his shoulder in the process and you know, so it's like this really funny kind of meta thing of, you know, like the death of the author and like throwing this book into the into the concavity and you know, it's all very uh, meta and all that kind of stuff so my paper was just sort of unpacking that but then also making the point that there are these kind of hopeful moments particularly around this one architectural object of a church spire in Manhattan and how the character characters living this really this world of simulation simulacrum he kind of has these moments of authenticity all based around this this object and so I kind of am making the argument that like there's some kind of maybe possible alignment between Lethem's literary ethos and some of the stuff that we see in Wallace, uh, in terms of like, you know, Wallace calling for a generation of literary rebels who will like care about single entendre principles and stuff like that. So it's a bit like paratextual in some senses, but that was kind of the main gist of my paper at the conference. So, Matt, you were there last year at the conference, the 2014,
0: the first annual. Right. In 2014, it was the first annual David Foster Wallace Conference in, in Bloomington, Illinois. And I, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I definitely wanted to go and check it out. So I I went and I had a great time in terms of meeting new people, meeting people who I had met only online before. And it was a really interesting conference because it was a mix of You know, academic people who are undergrads, grad students, people who were not students at all and just interested in Wallace. So I, I think that sort of dynamic is somewhat rare that a lot of obscure, you know, single author conferences don't attract a ton of public or even fans. There are some like it doesn't compare with something like William Faulkner, who has a huge conference every year. And, you know, there's tour buses full of people touring his, you know, childhood home and stuff. (laughs) But that sort of canonization happened pretty quickly and that Faulkner was not a huge hero, you know, immediately upon his death the way Wallace was. So it'll be interesting to see how Wallace turns out. There might well come a time where, you know, there are tours of his childhood home or um, statues of him. And that has happened, I will say, with um, John Updike. So, John Updike Society actually purchased recently Updike's childhood home. And they are in the process of restoring it. And I assume there will be tours and they do have an annual conference. So, there is some precedent for this. I think it's rare just that Wallace has such like cultural cachet, you know, and cultural awareness that people are way more interested in him like it seems like Wallace still matters a lot more than John Updike or even um, Faulkner maybe
1: yeah and like you're you're seeing a lot of David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest references in pop culture these days as well I think that probably speaks to kind of like the urgency or the relevancy of you know people really are caring a lot about David Foster Wallace at present so you know like the Simpsons episode on the cruise ship you see Wallace in the background in his in his tuxedo T-shirt kind of thing. There's a TV show called The Affair uh, that came out last year. There's a scene where like it's just these teachers in this room that are kind of on probation or whatever, and one guy's reading Infinite Jest, and then the, the protagonist comes in and they're talking about this book, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've tried to read that like two or three times, I could never get through it," and they have like a fairly extensive conversation about it, you know. And then like, did you did you see that movie? Um, liberal arts no okay so it's set at it's set at the at kenyon college and which is obviously significant for wallace and there's like several scenes where characters talk about this great big book they never actually like really flash the cover or they never mention david foster wallace but all the ways that they describe the book uh are like it's very clear that's who they're talking about so there's just like i mean and there's lots of other examples like on the tv show new girl and and all kinds of other ones where they're they're mentioning david foster Wallace, so he's becoming like he's yeah like you said the cachet ideas that even in pop culture he's becoming uh, not just like a
0: literary figure but also like a pop culture figure as well yeah and i think academically you know someone like faulkner probably matters a lot more or is much more cited and more important to the you know canon maybe of american history american literature yeah but Wallace does matter and is growing you know in his reputation, so I think it's important for you know recognizing when academics do take note of him and put on conferences and organize papers and books around him um, that That is something that doesn't happen for every author, no matter their age or you know how long they've been deceased.
1: yeah, totally. So your experiences at the conferences have been have been awesome, you would say. The people have been very cool
0: very cool and I hope that the conference continues yeah. I really hope that uh, ISU buys into the conference and sponsors it you know for the long term I, I don't know if that's true or not it, it seems still a little early in the game a little precarious after two years that even though they have an international conference on their hands the people coming from you know the UK and Australia to attend this conference Canada they still don't seem like they're <laughs> fully invested in it.
1: Right. Yeah. Like I heard some rumors that it might run in like LA next year or something, but I don't, I don't know if that's true.
0: I think it's all just rumors at this point until we know anything, but it would be nice if it's in the same place year after year. Yeah. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. So my experience at the conferences also has been, has been really cool. Uh, socially, everyone, everyone, that appears to attend these Wallace conferences are just very cool down to earth and very interesting people to talk to. I don't really get the sense that it's like this really competitive academic exercise. Like most people seem to be there just because they're really interested and they just wanna talk about Wallace. And I think that's quite cool. Um, I described my experience at the first, at the, the conference in Paris last year uh, to some of the other attendees on the last night over drinks is like to me it kind of felt like a high school reunion of a bunch of strangers oh, that's and like their collective perfect. memories rather than being like stories from grade from their senior year were like the collective memories were like scenes from infinite jest and you know <laughs> we're all just like reminiscing together and laughing and like oh yeah this scene about you know uh, blood sister and the scene about the no coat uh, tongue scraper ads and like all that stuff. And it's just like it had a very collegial kind of feel where everyone was on the same team and like everyone just loves this, this writing so much. And it's been such a formative part of who they are in like a literary sense and probably also in a personal sense for a lot of people as well. So my experiences at those two conferences have been just very awesome.
0: I was going to say one thing that's very different about the 2015 conference is the fact that we had the film there. And we really got a private screening in a great old historic theater of the end of the tour. And I, that added a lot, I think, to the conference. And we're about out of time on this show today. But I think that's something that we will discuss in depth later. Because I'm really curious to get your opinion on the film and what you think about Jason Siegel's portrayal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was very, it was really interesting to see how he he pulled that off.
0: Well, that about wraps it up on my end.
1: Cool. Uh, Is there anyone that you want to thank, Matt, for supporting you in the first episode of The Great Concavity?
0: I want to thank Dave Laird. I want to thank my family and (laughs) no, I don't really have anyone. How about you, Dave?
1: (laughs) Cool. Uh, I want to thank my wife, Rachel. She actually came up with the idea for this podcast. Um, we were on a road trip about a month ago and she's like, are there any podcasts specifically dedicated to Wallace? And I said, no, there aren't. I like check iTunes all the time. There's, you know, one-off episodes on like slate and other things about him, but there's no like actual dedicated podcast. She's like, well, you should start it. I was like, no, that sounds terrifying. Who am I? And, uh, anyway, she's just been really encouraging about it. And then, uh, I, pitched it to you and you were like yeah cool let's give it a shot so thank you matt booker as well thanks. for being uh for being willing to try this i think that's cool
0: thank you rachel uh,
1: uh also uh i want to thank my friend aaron cassidy who is uh, a podcaster from Kelowna. he has a board game podcast called boards Alive, and he's been very helpful with just telling me about technical things about how to do podcasting so thanks aaron also a huge thanks to the visual artist robin o'neill for allowing us to use her amazing graphite on paper piece for our podcast icon, which has the very loquacious and, I dare say, Wallisian title of These Final Hours Embrace At Last, This Is Our Ending, This Is Our Past. You can check out more of her stunning work on our website, robinoneal.com, that's Robin with a Y, as well as get a sense of her literary proclivities on her very own podcast, Me Reading Stuff on which she recently read the first piece from Wallace's Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, entitled A Radically Condensed History of Post-Industrial Life. We're in talks with Robin about having her on the show soon as a guest, so keep your fingers crossed for that. She is a huge Wallace fan, so that would be awesome to have her on. Thanks again, Robin, for your support for this show as well. Uh, and also a big thanks to the band Parquet Courts for allowing us to use their song Instant Disassembly as our intro and outro music, which is from their album Sunbathing Animal. If you are an exhibitionist and have any questions, comments, or are just in the mood for some friendly banter and want to say hi to us, you can get in touch on Twitter at the handle at Concavity Show. Or, if you're a bit more agoraphobically inclined, you can send us an email at concavityshow at gmail Finally, if you are a hardcore audio weenie, we apologize greatly for what has probably been a very horrendously recorded episode here. This is a totally DIY endeavor, which has meant me just watching Audacity tutorials on YouTube and trying to figure out how to, how to do this stuff myself. So hopefully this will improve as the show progresses. So, any last thoughts, Matt? No. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for listening to the first episode of The Great Concavity. And uh, if you liked it, and if you feel like it, you can leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Mama Cedar, catch me now as I say. Into darkness